for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Hey, Southbridge. Good morning. Um, just FYI, about halfway through the first service, I started losing my voice. If you are a guest, and my voice cracks in the middle of this message, I am 41, not 14, and I'm still going to go for it. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so we're going to go through the Word, okay? All right. Jesus is still risen. It's always Super Bowl Sunday for us, right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that we get to open up your Word today. Thank you that we get to gather in your name. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray we'd encounter you, that we'd be transformed by you, that, that we would know that you were speaking to us this morning. Father, if for some reason... I totally lose my voice. Will you speak to hearts? God, I pray as we cry out to you right now that people would be praying to you that you would do things that I could never guess to pray. And God, I pray you'd bind our hearts together as a church, that we live on mission for you, that we wouldn't talk about people being connected to you for life change, but that you'd change lives. I pray that bondages would be broken. I pray addictions would be transformed. I pray that marriages would get real and be intimate. And I pray that we'd be intimate with you. I pray it wouldn't be just people that gather together once a week, but that we'd be with you regularly. And then it would be, uh, people would see that and say like in the book of Acts, those people have been with Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday. A quick survey. How many of you here are New England Patriots fans? They're quiet. They just raise, they don't want you to stone them after the service. They know they're in the minority, right? It's just because they win. Everyone wants them to not win anymore. How many Eagles fans do we have here today? All right, I hear some. Everybody else is an Eagles fan today too, right? <laughs> just for today, if you weren't an Eagles fan before. It's just kind of how it works out. Let me tell you what's going to happen today. We're going to get over, we're done with the service. You'll go and eat lunch. About noon, the pregame will start. Now, the kickoff for this game today is not until 6.30. That's six and a half hours of pregame. I don't know exactly what's going to be shown in the pregame, but I've got years of experience of watching this, and so I'm going to guess... What they're probably going to do is try and hook you in with some human interest stories of different players on different teams, and they'll weave within that some commercials. So for instance, I don't know if this is a true story or not, they might show a story of two guys, one on the Patriots, one on the Eagles, and they're both cousins, and they didn't know it until this week, <laughs> followed by our sponsor, Ancestry.com, you know, <laughs> 23andMe, and they'll do the thing. They'll tell some stories of the history of the Super Bowl. Vince Lombardi and who he was, and then they'll show you some guys that maybe have been to every Super Bowl since they were 12 years old, and they've gone together, and they always go, and they couldn't get tickets this time, and so somebody donated this thing, and thank you, our sponsor, McDonald's, for donating the tickets, and they kind of weave this stuff together to hook you in, and then there'll be a bunch of hoopla. Maybe they'll do a segment on the best Super Bowl commercials, because that's why some of you are going to watch, right? You don't have a team. You're like, I'm for Doritos. <laughs> you know, I want to see who's got the best commercial out there, and they'll show some of that stuff. They'll bring in an expert. He'll show you what's happening with the Patriots, not just stealing plays, not deflated footballs. The controversy will be woven throughout too. Sorry if you're a Patriots fan. That's just the way that it is. But some guy will come out with a magic marker that can write on your TV screen. And he'll show you when Rob Gronkowski lines up right here, the safety should move over to here. And the safety moves over here, then Tom Brady will make this adjustment. And you'll watch and go, I never saw that. I didn't know all that was happening during the play. But you got the expert to show you. So they talk about the history, you'll have the expert come in, you've got the human interest stories, you've got all these things that are happening. And if you're a player, you've got to try to stay focused on the game. 
And I think about the, the coach's job. Like if you're Bill Belichick and you've got these 53 guys on your roster and you want them to focus on what happens between those sidelines when the whistle blows, 60 minutes, 15 minutes, quarters, four quarters, right here, 100 yards, feels the same size it was when you were in high school, same size it was when you were in junior high. Some of these guys have been playing this game their whole life. And he wants them to drown out the controversy, drown out the distractions. If we call timeout and they play a commercial of a squirrel chasing a blue jay that's eating Doritos on its way to Taco Bell, don't watch. Like, you need to focus on the game. And both teams will come into the game with a plan. Let me tell you something. I love this quote by Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> What's going to happen is the bright lights are going to be there. It's going to be a big game. If I were Bill Belichick or one of the coaches, I'd be tempted to go Hoosiers on them. Have you seen that movie from the 80s, the Hoosiers movie, basketball movie? There's a small-town Indiana basketball team, and they're going to be playing a basketball game, a state championship game, this huge gym. Gene Hackman's the coach, and he takes them in there. He measures the hoops. It's still 10 feet. Free throw line, still 15 feet. Goes through the whole thing. You've got to focus on the game. And the game really starts when that first tackle happens. Both teams got a plan. Both of them have a plan that will win the game for them. But then stuff ha- it gets real once we tackle each other. And why are you talking about all this? We're supposed to be talking about the Bible and Christianity and the Christian life. Let me tell you why. There's a ton of parallels. As Christians, we spend a lot of time analyzing the Christian life. And we may come to church for different reasons. Maybe we like the human interest stories, or we call them life change stories, when God changes someone else's life. Or maybe we want an expert to show us things in the Bible. Maybe it's not a play on the field, but in the Bible, diagram a sentence for us. Show us something in the Bible we didn't see on our own. Maybe we love the historical background, and so we want to see those things that we don't always see. And we want to talk about these things that we agree with and we believe are true. But let me tell you when game time is. It's in relationships. It's not the kickoff. Do you want to know when the rubber meets the road? Between a husband and wife. Between a child and their parents. Between two siblings. You and your coworkers. The guy that cuts you off on the road. The barista. The people that you, you bump into throughout the week on a regular basis. You see, the Christian life gets real in relationships. And Peter knew that. And that's why he transitions us today. We've been doing this series in the book of Peter. If you've got your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. And we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going start reading verse 22. But so far in this series, we've been going through this book where the first 12 verses just talk about all the stuff God's done for us. He's given us a new hope. We are foreigners. He's changed our identity. When we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, this place is no longer our home. That's the overarching theme of the whole book. If we would get that truth, in, not just in our minds, but into us, it changed everything about us. It changed the way we live We have unbelievable generosity, inexpressible joy, a bold faith, but it's got to get to our hearts. So far, he's told us all this stuff for us to know, told us these truths. We got a new hope, new identity, new family, new mission. And then verse 13, he started giving us commands we looked at last week. The first command was, you got a new hope. How you hope determines how you live. So hope in the grace that you haven't even received yet. You've received a ton of grace if you're a believer in Jesus. But hope in this, other, this grace that's going to come, this future grace. You want to make a difference in this world? You've got to be different in this world. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And we saw fear our Father because he's altogether different than us. Why? He's ransomed us. Don't remember you've been ransomed from the futile ways of this life? And then he gives us this next command. And what happens is Peter transitions from talking about, hey, you personally be holy. You personally fear God. You personally have this hope. He starts talking about, what about relationships? Because this is when it gets real. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls 
by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. By the way, that word brotherly there is the Greek word Philadelphia, which shows that God is an Eagles fan too. (laughs) If you're a Patriots fan today, it's just such easy material. I'm sorry. We love you. We're glad you're here. You can repent. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But we're we're thankful you're here. Everyone's welcome. We even have ECU, NC State, Duke, and UNC people, and they they actually exist together because we love the gospel. This word Philadelphia is where he's showing us there's different words he could use for love. Brotherly love is love like you'd love a family member. And he's talking about believers within the church, each other. That we have this sincere brotherly love, and then the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart or deeply from the heart. Since, here's why, you've been born again, you've received new life. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Pastor Seth prayed earlier from a verse in Hebrews when he was praying. It talks about that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And here it says that God's word is living. What does it mean that God's word is living? You've ever wondered that before? Because it's not like the Bible's walking around. Here's what it means. That it gives life. No one here would have eternal life in Jesus Christ if it wasn't for somebody sharing the scriptures, the truth from God's word, into your life. It could have been all kinds of different verses. You might have known they were quoting verses. You might not have known they were quoting verses. For me, it was John 14, 6. This is that Jesus speaking. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I remember, I was not like, you know, you hear stories of some really smart people like Josh McDowell studies Islam, studies all the different philosophies, all different, and then says Christianity is the one. I didn't do that. But I remember when I heard John 14, 6, I thought to myself, am I going to waste my life on all these other philosophies? And then it was like God said to my heart, I gave you my son. It's God's word that gives life. Maybe for you it was Romans 3, 23 or John 3, 16 or Romans 10, 9 and 10. I don't know what passage of scripture it was, but it's through the word that we receive life. And then he says this in verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are being persecuted because of their faith. And what he's saying to them is this, everything you see is temporary. But think about how encouraging this would be. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So live according to the word. And this is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. And when he talks about the word, he's talking about the gospel, the good news that gives new life. And so you look at this, passage of scripture and you see that we're commanded here the command that's been given is to love one another and so our, our first point today is simply going to be this new life must produce new love new life must produce new love but it's grounded in the new life and we talked about last week how whenever god gives a command so our command is brotherly love love one another sincere brotherly love earnest deep from the heart love but that doesn't just come out of it nowhere too It's always grounded in God's grace. God's commands, his demands are always grounded in God's grace. The grace is the new life. And so you think about what he's been talking about here in this passage. He's been talking about new life. You've been ransomed for this new life. Having purified your souls, that's new life. Then verse 23, since you've been born again, that's new life. And so if you have new life, only if you have new life, only talking to you if you've got this life, you should love. It must produce a new kind of love for other people. That's interesting to me in the passage, because when you follow Peter's flow of thoughts, he's talked about hope in Christ. It's going to be revealed, the grace is going to be revealed in Christ. Be holy, because your Father is holy. It's about God. 
He says, fear your father. He's altogether different. And remember, the fear is not because he's going to zap you, because he's, he's coming against you. Knowing you've been redeemed, fear your father. He's altogether different. It seems like he'd balance that out with love God. But he doesn't. It's love each other. It's like he's, he assumes the love for God and goes right to the result, which is that we'd love each other. And here's the reality. Peter's getting real here now. Because let's be honest. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we've got a great relationship with God, and then it gets all messed up when other people come into our lives, doesn't it? Think about some of you. Some of you here are students, and you went to camp, and maybe you're at New Life Camp or some other camp here in town, and you won an award for how good you were doing with the Christian life, how kind you were, how gentle you were. You won the Fruit of the Spirit Award. Then you came home, and you found out your siblings been hanging out in your bedroom all week. You're about to kill somebody. I am not my brother's keeper, is what you're thinking in that moment. And that's not how that verse is supposed to be used, just FYI. Because you get other people in your life, and it's all of a sudden it's messed up. Or you're driving to work, maybe you're singing a worship song. You're thinking you could be on Hillsong. Like, you're, you're ready to go. Like, you're saying, take me with where my trust is without borders, Lord. Like, you're into it. And then you see that dude at your office. It's annoying. And you give him, like, the side eye. You know the side eye? Oh, God, why'd you even make annoying people? Let me tell you why. It's for your sanctification, just so you know. Our moms, some of you moms, I have so, so much respect for you. You don't even have a private moment in your life with your little kids. You've got to get up earlier than everybody else, and so you're up early one morning, and you've got your coffee mug. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water on it, <laughs> right? You're drinking free trade coffee because you're socially responsible, and you're there, and got your Bible open to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and got the lamp on. Not a bright light. You don't want to wake anybody up. You've got the lamp on. And then some kid comes walking in telling you what their sibling did. You're like, can I just love Jesus for a minute? Get out of here. Everything's going great until you bring in these other people. I'll tell you, I've been singing praise songs before somebody cuts me off. I'm like, the wrath of God. And so I, I don't even drive a stick. I grab the thing. I'm like, I wish I had missiles. <laughs> Confession's good. But I was loving Jesus the minute before. You see, it gets real. The Christian life gets real in relationships. And Peter knows that. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. <laughs> That's all over the Bible. It's not a new commandment. You can find it in Leviticus, by the way. Leviticus with the sacrifices and the rams and all that. Yeah, and love one another. It's not new. It's the next part of that verse that's key. Just as I have loved you. Hear what we're talking about. When we talk about a love that's based on the new life that we have in Christ, it must be produced, must produce this new love. It's not a normal love like the rest of this world has. You want to make a difference, you've got to be different. This kind of love is a different kind of love. The Philadelphia love here, this, that you'd have this love for people that sometimes are annoying, that are different than you. The Eagles would love the Patriots, and Patriots love the Eagles, and all these different things. It'd be different. What's so different about it? Well, first of all, it's a grounded in grace. Go back to verse 22 and look and see what it says there about the type of love we're supposed to have. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Wait a minute. When I read that, I think to myself, I'm not always obedient to the truth. Do, do I have enough obedience to purify my soul? What are you talking about here, Peter, when you say that? Well, what he's talking about, that, that word purified, is a participle. And it's a perfect tense participle. Let me tell you what that means. You're like, why does grammar matter? Let me get out my magic marker and show you a little stuff here. Perfect tense means this. Perfect tense means the past action with continuous results. 
And so what's the past action that he's talking about? Well, in the Scripture, words always get their, and it's really in life too, words always get their meaning from the context that they're used in. So what's he talking about here, being purified? The past action is our redemption, that we've been ransomed. And you go back up to verses 18 through 21. If you have your Bible, I won't read the whole thing. It says, knowing that you were ransomed. Ransom, we said last week, means when somebody pays a price so you can be set free. What's the price? What are we set free from? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that you wouldn't live your life like everybody else. You'd think that it'd say that you'd be ransomed from your sin, that you'd be ransomed from whatever bondage. You'd be ransomed from... And he says, no, the overarching theme of the book, remember, this is in your home, that we wouldn't live like, how stupid is it? How stupid would you have to be to go stay a week in a hotel and cash in your 401k to renovate the room so you'd enjoy that week more? And that's how dumb some of us are in the way that we live. Like, this is all there is. I was talking to a friend this week that was telling me how important his grass was at a house he used to own. And he said, I would keep the road, I wanted it to look straighter and nicer than my neighbors. And so I had all this time into it and all this effort into it, sold the house. Drove by, there's weeds in the lawn. <laughs> Drive them nuts. But an illustration of everything here is temporary. You've been ransomed from living for the temporary. You've been ransomed from, have nice grass, it's a good neighbor to do that. But don't make it so important that that's part of the purpose of your life. You've been ransomed from those things. And, and what are you ransomed with? Look at it. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold or stocks or bonds or 401ks or whatever you want to fill in the blank with from here, but with the precious blood of Christ. Well, who are you ransomed from? Because a payment had to be made, and sometimes in our minds we get this idea that Jesus' blood was paying Satan off because we were in bondage to sin. No, there's no payment being made to Satan. God's paying God. It's God's wrath that's coming against us because we decided to live for futile ways. His wrath was coming on us, so Jesus took the wrath on the cross. That's why his blood was shed, so you could have new life. If you have that new life, then what's the result? Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience. Obedience is when somebody shared the truth of the gospel with you. You trusted Christ. Past action, continuous results. What are the continuous results? Here's for a sincere brotherly love. So what is it that makes this love different? Love one another earnestly. What does it mean to love one another earnestly? You could be, some of your translations might say fervently. It's an athletic term. It means to go to the full extent. It's like a muscle stretched out as far as it will go. Fervently. It's used only two other times in the New Testament. Both times, I think interestingly, since we're in a prayer initiative as a church, it has to do with prayer. One of them, to illustrate for you, is when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he's going to be murdered, before he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas. And he's praying, and he prays this in Luke chapter 22. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more, and there's our word, earnestly, and his sweat. So first of all, he's praying so intensely, he's sweating. There's the athletic term. If you ever prayed, I mean, we pray so intensely, we fall asleep, at least I have. Ever pray so intensely you're sweating? You sweat and you become, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's the intensity that we see here. And so when you see that we're supposed to love one another earnestly, you should know this, it takes work. This doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional about loving this way. 
It requires us to see needs in the lives of others and then to take action to meet those needs, which is the very thing that Jesus did for us. That's why it's grounded. Our love has to be grounded in the love that we've received. Have you received that love? If you've received that kind of love, then, it's, then it should produce that kind of love in your life in relationships when it gets real. So do you see needs of others and do you take actions to meet those needs? It's like a story I heard this week of a Wheaton basketball team. It was a college in Illinois and they went over to Malawi, Africa to play basketball with a, another basketball team that was over there. And what happened was the uh, Wheaton coach, one of the coaches on the Wheaton staff, had a relationship with one of the coaches on a, a Malawi team's staff and they thought it would be good for the community to bring the Wheaton basketball team over there to play a basketball game with one another. And so this team flew, flies all the way over there uh, to, to see this game. But something you need to know that I didn't know until I heard this story was in Malawi, it's one of the few places where it's normal to see grown men, uh, children, women walking down the street without shoes. Shoes are really important in this community. Um, they require resources, and they don't have a lot of resources. They're so poor, a lot of people don't have shoes. But if you have shoes, it means you're important. It means you're successful. It shows that you have resources. And so this team comes all the way over from Wheaton to play basketball in Malawi, and when they get to the gym, there's two players that are there from Malawi, from the team, that are scrimmaging against one another, which would be normal. They're scrimmaging one-on-one -on -one and playing, and the Wheaton team's kind of bringing their gym bags in, throwing everything on the side, and getting ready to have their practice. And they start watching these basketball players from Malawi, and they notice that, you know, they're playing, it seems totally fine, but when they're running, they're kind of hobbling to one side, and they scan down and they notice both players are wearing one shoe. Now, they're college students, and so they don't know what to do with this. They're kind of snickering and pointing at it a little bit. And one of the coaches from the Wheaton basketball team goes over to the, the Malawi team's bench and talks to his contact there. Says, hey, why are these guys doing this? Like, they're going to get hurt. Like, this is not good. This is not, this is not good for basketball. It doesn't make them a better player. They'd be better off if they just didn't wear any shoes. Why are they doing this? And he says, you've got to know something about our culture. To have shoes means you're important. And what happened was, that one player had a pair of gym shoes and he showed up, the other guy didn't have any shoes. And so he gave one of his shoes to the other guy so that when you arrived, that in your eyes, you would see them both as important. And I started thinking about that and thought about the guy that had the pair of shoes. He saw a need, he took action to do, and to us it's like, no, that's ridiculous, why are you wearing, because we got all kinds of shoes, some would be embarrassed how many shoes some of us have. But for him it was, I want you to know that you're treasured. I want you to know that you're valued. If you look through the Bible and you see the way that Jesus defines love, think about Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you value? We ask ourselves, do we love Jesus? Do we treasure Jesus? And we love other people, do we treasure them? To the point where we're not thinking about what it might cost us to serve them, but we're thinking about their needs. See, real love, it sees the needs of others. Do you even see needs of, and let's get real in your relationships, your neighbors? You just close the garage door and go in your house. People you come into contact with at work, are you just trying to do things so that you can move up the ladder? Your spouse, your kids, your parents, whoever it is you come into contact with, do you see those needs or are they there for you? And I want to say something to you as a church body. You know, pastors oftentimes it's like, hey, you need to do better at this and start doing more of this and... I get to stand up and teach on Sundays, which is a great privilege, but y'all teach me all the time. And I've learned a lot of lessons about loving other people just by being a part of this church. Periodically, I give my father-in-law a hard time 
um, when I'm telling stories, and most of the bad stuff that happens in my life is his fault, so I, that's justified. <clears throat> but I was telling my wife the other day, he doesn't know how to share this story, but I was telling my wife, um, your dad's so humbling to me. And she said, why? I said, because the way he loves other people. I said, he's constantly looking and seeing needs in people's lives. And he's not asking questions whether he can. He just serves to go meet those needs. And I told her an example. I said, the example that I'm thinking of is, there was a couple that was a part of our church in the early days, and they, were, they moved away because of work, and then they were living in Washington, D.C., and they were going to move back to Raleigh. And I said, and your dad, he wasn't asked by them to help them move. He just went up there and started helping them move. I said, I wouldn't have even thought of that, is what I told my wife. I said, I wouldn't have thought, if, if that guy who's also my friend would have called me and said, hey, we're in D.C., we're moving down there, do you think you could come up and help us move, like sacrifice your weekend? I'd have thought, you don't know how busy I am. You know, the stuff I've got. I would have thought about all the cost it is to me. But my father-in-law is not thinking about the cost it is to him. He's thinking about the need that's present in somebody else's life. And he's not the only one in our church that does that. I've seen some of you before. When you see another family struggling, bring them into your home, financially helping them. I've seen people before when there's marriages that are struggling, you take time away from your own marriage, time away from your own kids, so you can go invest in somebody else's to tell them the truth, to confront them in sin, to help guide them and, and care for them through difficulty. I learned a lot about loving other people by being part of a church. And that's because that's what's supposed to happen. That's the Philadelphia love. But here's the reality. Even non-Christians do actions. What Peter does is he shows us what really makes Christian love distinct is when you get to the motive level. So love each other earnestly, deeply from the heart, but go back to verse 22. You've, you've, you've obeyed the truth and trusted Christ. You've got new life. Why does it happen for a sincere brotherly love? What does that word sincere mean? Sincere, we oftentimes think of ourselves as like, well, I meant it. I really, when I said I loved you, I meant the words. It's a love that lacks all hypocrisy, which Hypocrisy does not simply mean saying one thing and doing something else. That's such a simple definition of hypocrisy, and many of us have subscribed to that. But it gets to the motive level. Why do you do what you do? Because if you look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, they do some incredible things, and Jesus says it's worthless. He says to them in Luke, if you, if you have a Bible, you can flip over to Luke chapter 11. He confronts some Pharisees. He says a lot harsher words in some other places. But he says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe. Oh, tithing's wrong. Before you think that, let me keep going. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. And then he says, these you ought to have done. It's not wrong. The action you did, not wrong. The why you did it is the problem without neglecting the others. You didn't do it out of love for God. You, some of their motive might have been so people can see how generous I am. Some of their motive might have been because I'm trying to get merit before God. I want him to know how great I am. I mean, some of people might have been working off their bad stuff. Going, no, the motive matters. Many of us, we just think, well, if you're doing a good thing, that's great. Who cares why you're doing it? God cares. And it needs to be done with a, a sincere Philadelphia love, a sincere familial love, a sincere love that you'd sacrifice willingly, not about the cost for you, but about what you're doing to meet that need because you love. So ask yourself when you think about the things you do in relationships for your kids, for your parents, for your neighbors at work, wherever those relationships are happening at in your life, and God can put in your heart which one he wants you to think about. Why? Why do you do it? Because why matters. We can do incredible things, and if they're not done with love, they don't matter at all. 
We're talking about living for eternity. You think that I'm making that stuff up? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is the love chapter. The problem is we usually jump into the description of love. Love is kind and patient. It doesn't keep records of wrongs. It's not self-seeking. You know, at the very beginning, the first three verses, it talks about incredible things that can be done, but if they're, they're done without love, they don't matter at all. You know what one of them is? You could give away all your money and die a martyr's death. If you don't love, it means nothing. So there's people that have died for their faith, and it means nothing for eternity. That's implied here, at least. So why do you do what you do? And you hear people say sometimes, I did a service project, Southbridge Serves, Mission Trip, and, and then you start hearing why they did it. And they say, because of all that I received from doing it. Okay, you're honest about why. Don't call it a service project, though. Call it a self-improvement project, because that's what it is. Now, you can do the same actions and then be poured out for the sake of other people, and it does matter. It is love. But why do you serve? If you serve in Bridge Kids, thank you so much. I've got kids in Bridge Kids. I thank you from the bottom of my heart you serve there. But if you do it so that the rest of the church knows that you serve so much, eternally, that doesn't matter at all. If you do it because you want to, because love's been poured into you and you want to pour love into those little kids, awesome. Why do you lead a group? Why do you, whatever you do, why do you do, you see at work it's so clear. Oftentimes we know, hey, I'm doing this stuff because I want to be rewarded. Okay, but what about in our relationships? I've had husbands in this church tell me that they are kind to their wives, do nice things for their wives so that later they might be able to have sex. Sex, not bad. Doing nice stuff for your wife, not bad. But that ain't love. Why do you do what you do? And that's what sets the love apart. You want to be different? You want to make a difference? You got to be different. And this is different. The kind of love, sincere love, earnest love from a pure heart. Why would you do that? Because you've been born again, verse 23. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed to the living and abiding word of God. So what do we do, though? What do we, how do we do this? Like, Peter doesn't just leave us here going, hey, you need to love better. Love better. Go love better. He tells us how. And that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we'll look at here. Not only does new love produce, new, our new life produce new love, but our new life in Christ should create new longings in our heart. That's our second point. Our new life in Christ should create new longings in our heart. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted, if, if indeed you have tasted, the Lord is good. That's if you have this new life, then here's what you should do. You want to have great relationships? Well, you got to get rid of some stuff in your life. You want to be able to have this? There's things in the way. There's things that are blocking it. And so you look at this list in verse 1 of these sins. All of these sins have one thing in common. They ruin relationships. You ever read sin lists throughout the Bible? You got to ask yourself in this context, why are these sins chosen and not others? There's a lot of other sins that could be put here, but he says here, go look, look at it. Walk back through verse 1 with me. So put away all malice. Malice is evil intent. You've got ill will towards someone else. Does anybody like that in your life? You want harm in their life. Maybe not physical harm. Do you want bad, like, to kind of show something. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe you've got bitterness towards them. Let me point out something about this. It doesn't say to have less malice in your life. Because that's kind of how we work. I need to get better at having not so much malice. No, it says get, get rid of all malice. 
put away. It's the language of throwing off. It's like having your warm-up clothes on when you come to play a sport. Get rid of the clothes that are going to hinder you. Throw off. Put that away. It's game time. Put away all malice, all deceit. Don't be deceived. All hypocrisy. We've talked about hypocritical love already. And envy. Envy is an interesting one here because I think it's the fuel that drives the rest of these sins. Envy. We've got envy in our heart. We don't want good things happening in somebody else's life for various reasons. And then it leads to things like this. All slander. These things are all relationship killers. At our dinner table last night, we were talking, talking about some difficult things that were happening at school for some of the kids, and sometimes names get attached to those difficult things. Do you know that's slander? We start talking disparagingly about someone else. Oftentimes as Christians we think, as long as it's true, we are the truth police. Here's the reality. It's not just that what you're saying has to be false for it to be slander. Anytime you speak disparagingly of someone else, that's slander. So we can talk about those things at our table, but let's just have a rule that we don't talk about other people unless they're present if we're going to say things that are disparaging about those people. Because that's slander. That ruins relationships. You got that? That's blocking your heart from being able to love the way that it was talked about back in verse 22. But how do I do that? This is one of those things that's easy to talk about in church and be like, yeah, I need to not have malice. I need to not have slander. I need to not envy. I need to stop envying so much. And maybe you know the person that God's laying on your heart in this moment for that. But what do you do? Verse 2. The Bible tells us the answers are in the Bible. It says, like newborn infants. This is our command. That first part's not really even a command. It's a participle there to put away. This is our only command right here in verses 1 through 3. Like newborn infants long for, crave the pure spiritual milk. What's pure spiritual milk? Well, verse 2 is connected to verse 1. Verse 1 starts with the word so or therefore. And so then it's connecting back to what was before it. Do you know what was before it? Verses 24 and 25 is talking about God's word. The pure spiritual milk is the word of God. So long for, crave God's word. How do you do that? Like a baby. And think about this analogy that he's given here. If we think about our desire, maybe you want, you know, milk with a snack or something. And we're not talking about cow's milk, by the way, or almond milk or whatever it is you drink in your refrigerator. We're talking about a baby wanting milk from its mother. That's what it uses to survive. Most of us, when we think of milk, milk is nice. It'd be nice to have milk with our cereal. It'd be nice to have milk with whatever desire. A baby needs milk. And so I think about sharing this with you and, and knowing that a large percentage of our audience, I don't know what it is, 60, 70, maybe 80% of the people that come here on a Sunday are Christians or profess to be Christians. And most Christians would affirm God's word. You believe, like anything that I say that's positive about God's word, you'd be like, yeah, that's, that's true. Most of us act like God's word is nice, not necessarily like God's word is needed. And there's a difference. The analogy that's being given here is of a child. You know how they feel about milk? They need milk. We've had four babies. My wife did all the heavy lifting in that, so give her all that credit. I've tried to take credit, but anyway. <clears throat> when they want milk, they make it really obvious, just so you know. If they don't say, um, excuse me, Mom, I think I might die if you don't give me some milk. No, they start screaming their faces off. It doesn't matter if you're on an airplane, at a restaurant, you're sleeping in the middle of the night. When they want milk, ah! like it's time. Now's the moment as if you've never given me milk before. And let me tell you something. Some of you are new parents. Let me just give you this little tip. There's three reasons why baby cry, babies cry. One, their diaper needs to be changed. Check that first. Two, they need milk. Three, they're just driving you nuts. Ain't nothing you can do about it. <laughs> That's what happens. 
We're talking about number two here in this passage. Baby needs milk. They need, they need. Milk's not like, hey, you know what? It'd be nice if I could have some milk right now. They're craving, that's a strong word, longing for, and we're being commanded to desire something. This isn't behavior. He's commanding our hearts here. Do you know why? Because if he can give us new life, God's word gives life, then he can give us new desires. He's commanding here something that we wouldn't do on our own. We've got to depend upon him to do. We want new, long for God's word. It's like the, some of you saw the state of the church address this past week, and I'm not making any political statements with this other than that just that it happened. And so whether you love Donald Trump or you hate Donald Trump, just pray for our president. The Bible commands that. But in his speech, he ended up pausing at one point, acknowledging a guy who defected from North Korea. I don't know if you saw that part of the speech or not. But this guy was living there in the 90s when there was a famine going through North Korea. It said that it was so bad. I just looked it up the story and tried to learn more about this guy after the, after the speech was over with. And it was so bad. Teachers weren't teaching because they were so exhausted. And this guy was a kid, and he was trying to get food. So he was stealing coal from a train so that he could go sell the coal for corn. And he was so exhausted from not having food, he passed out on the train tracks to wake up when the train was going over his limbs. He had his leg amputated, his arm amputated, without any anesthetics. And they scanned past when Trump was talking about that, his face, and he was crying as a grown man, remembering that pain. And so when he was recovering from the surgery, his brother and sister gave the food that they had so that he could recover, and they ate dirt. And I thought, for us here in in North Raleigh, and different people come from different backgrounds, different levels of wealth, I understand that. How hungry do you have to be to eat dirt? That's need level. I need food. That's what Peter's talking about here. I need God's word. Not it's nice. You know what? I should really read the Bible more. No. Man does not live on bread alone, but the very words of God. When Jesus is being tempted, he quotes God's word. Let me tell you something about God's word. It will not come out of you if you haven't put it in you. God's word does not come out of you in moments of temptation if you haven't put God's word in you. You do need this. Just oftentimes we supplemented our diet with so much junk, we don't even know how malnourished we are. We need God's word. But what if we don't want it? I remember one of the most real moments I've ever had as a pastor. Think about that. Pastors talk about suicide, pastors talk about sexual problems, pastors talk about addictions, pastors talk about marriages struggling, pastors talk about all kinds of stuff, doubt, skepticism. But I remember one time I was teaching a men's thing, I think it was after a Father's Day, and a group of men from our church, we were at the church office, teaching them something from God's Word, somehow we got talking about God's Word, and one of the guys, because oftentimes when you're talking about the other, even like suicide or something, you're talking to somebody about their marriage, I'm going to be candid with you, and, some, and people always put a guard up, even when they're talking about real stuff. Want to protect their image, whatever. And you got to ask yourself, as the one who's like helping, are we really talking about what we're talking about? But there was this one moment I remember. It was so the guy was just being so authentic. I, I'd give him props for saying it. He just raised his hand. And he said, "Hey, why don't I want to read God's word?" He said, "I'll spend four hours watching the Panthers. I don't want to spend fifteen minutes reading the Bible." And I thought, now, now we're getting real. I know there's other people here that maybe wouldn't say that, but we feel that way. What if that's true? That's why Peter tells us verse 3. Look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted, tasted is such an interesting, he could have chosen any of the senses. If you've touched, if you've known, 
if you've heard. But he says, tasted, so intimate. You ingest into your body to taste. You've experienced it yourself. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, you want something, you want to crave something, get a taste of it. I remember one time, I'm thinking about sharing this illustration, just came to me. Uh, I was at a friend's house before knowing Jesus. I was at a friend's house. His brother was a drug dealer, and he had some crack. And he said, my brother said, don't ever touch this stuff, because then you're going to want it. I remember the fear of that in that moment. You want, you know, Pringles has the, once you pop, you can't stop, right? Maybe I don't know if they'll do a commercial for the Super Bowl or not. It's salty. Of course you want more of it. What potato chip have you ever eaten and gone, I don't want any more of those? Of course you eat more than one. What's being said here is this. You got to get God's, you got to taste the goodness, the kindness of the Lord. How do you do that? Through his word. If, if, you've, if you're a believer, you've at least tasted because God's word is what gave you life. And so you can go through here, and I, and I can show you the reason. I can tell you the reasons. Hey, God, if without God's word, you wouldn't have life. God uses his word to sustain life. It's God uses his word to destroy sin. You don't want to know how verse two, one happens? Verse two. You want to get rid of all malice? You want to get rid of all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander? You want to know how you love with a brotherly love? Verse two. Crave the word. But what if I don't? Verse three. Taste. You've got to experience God yourself, and you do it through the Word. We're doing a prayer initiative as a church, and we're asking God to speak to us. How do you think He's going to do that? Like a lot of us think, well, it might be a burning bush. He could. It happened once. Maybe He'll write in the sky. It could happen. Or maybe He wants to use what He's already given us in His Word. He's already spoken to us in His Word. And so this prayer initiative, a couple weeks ago, my mentor was here, the guy who led me to Jesus, and he was preaching to you about prayer and challenged our body. Hey, pr- can you pray? And at that point, it was 70 days till Easter. We're about 56 days till Easter now. So pray for 30 minutes a day. Gave you stuff to pray about, think about, and about 300 people committed to praying for the next 30 day, or 70 days at that point for 30 minutes a day. I don't know how it's gone. If you prayed for 25 minutes, God still loves you, just so you know. But you're asking God to speak to you, and some of us will sit there and pray with God's word sitting right there and never open up God's word. Let me challenge you today with this. What if you would spend 15 minutes a day, just 15 minutes a day, you can read the whole book of 1 Peter in 15 minutes, just so you know. If you read 15 minutes a day from God's word from now until Easter, maybe God will speak to your hearts that way. So 30 minutes praying, 15 minutes reading his word, there's 1,440 minutes in a day. To spend 30 minutes praying, it's 2% of your week. You add about another percent, not quite. We talk about being unbelievably generous. Could we dedicate 3% of our time from now until Easter to speaking to and hearing from God? Crave his word. How's that ever going to happen if we never get in it?